So we, uh, we started decorating early at the Morris household this year. I don't know about you guys. I feel like 2020 just needed a little extra cheer, some extra lights maybe. Uh, last night we were decorating the Christmas tree, but we started even the week before Thanksgiving. Ashley has turned our home into a winter Christmas wonderland uh, because we needed some, some 2020 cheer. And uh, as, we're, as we're thinking about the implications of incarnation, I was thinking about it. You know, mid-November isn't too early, I don't think, to start decorating. Because the truth is, the implications of the incarnation could be rightly celebrated every day. That this story that we're drawing near to over the next month to celebrate of God coming to earth and taking on flesh because of his love and his pursuit of people has so many implications, so many facets, so much beauty that, that it's never too early to start celebrating. And this year, we wanna, we wanna zoom in on one particular facet of the beauty of that story and the reasons that it's worthy to, to celebrate and to think about. And, and we're, we're zooming in on this, this reality that no matter where we find ourselves, we are never too far. We're never too far from the love and the grace of God. So if you don't hear anything else today over the next month, I just want you to just hear that right now. However you find yourself today, whatever has gone on this week or last night or, or this year or in your lifetime, you are never too far from the love and the grace and the presence and the pursuit of God. It's good news, and it's worthy of celebrating. And so we're going we're gonna to explore it together. And the way that we're going to explore it is we're considering the birth of Jesus and the celebration of Advent and of Christmas is we're going to pay a particular attention to his genealogy. We're going to study his genealogy, and then we're going to let that genealogy send us off into other places in the scriptures to make sense of what's happening there. But, you know, in order for us to make sense of this, we have to realize that in the ancient world, it's been said that a genealogy is like a resume, that in the ancient world, your ability to step into things, to have a platform or power was entirely dependent upon your family and your heritage and where you were from and who you were connected to. And so a, a lineage is like a resume. Your genealogy is your resume. But there's going to be something really interesting that we confront in the book of Matthew is that Jesus' genealogy is unexpected. It is not normal. And ultimately, it's because he's applying for a job that nobody expected him to apply for. That he's not coming as a king in power to conquer and to have no chink in his armor, to be, to, to, to be perfectly powerful and strong at all points. But he's actually coming in weakness and lowliness because he's coming as the savior of the whole world to, to declare to this world that there is no one that's too far from the love and the presence and the grace of God. And one of the ways that we see this most pointedly in the genealogy is the fact that in a patriarchal culture, there are several women that are specifically named in this genealogy. Now, this would have been like alarm bells in a first century Jewish ears reading Matthew's gospel. They would have said, ding, 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 something specific is going on here. That in the telling of a genealogy, that there would be included women, and not just women, but very specific women, oftentimes with very unique stories. And so for our purposes to understand the unexpected nature of this resume of the savior of the world. We're gonna zoom in week by week and pay attention to what are we learning from the particular women that are included in Jesus's genealogy. 
And we're going to learn that there's, there's no one that's too far from the love and the grace and the presence of God. And so, if you would, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 as we examine the resume of King Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. And then if you've got your Bible, I'd also invite you right now to, to flip to Genesis 38. And we're going we're gonna to start in Matthew 1 and we're going to let us shoot off into the story of the first woman that's included in Jesus' genealogy, a woman named Tamar. Just before we read from these two passages, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. There's a lot of things that are beckoning for your attention and inviting you to build your life on them, to trust them, to trust their voice, but we would be really, really wise to above and beyond all other voices, all other claims, to pay special attention to this word. Starting in Matthew 1, I want to read verses 1 through 3a. We're just going to read the introduction to this genealogy this morning, and then we're going to turn to Genesis 38. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Thus far, it sounds like a normal genealogy. We're talking about some really key characters, all men being named. We're talking about David and Abraham, heroes of the faith. But then interestingly, it says this, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And this would be a twist, a turn. This would be unexpected to first century Jewish ears. And then especially so when they recall the story of Tamar. And so I want you to, with me, turn to Genesis 38 as we dig in and pay attention to who is this person that's being included in Jesus' genealogy or his resume. I'd like to read the first 12 verses of Genesis 38, if you'd follow along with me, or rather the first 11 verses to get us going. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Just a little bit of history here. A second born son uh, producing offspring for a, a dead older brother is in a, in a sense keeping his line intact. But for Onan, that would mean that the double portion, the double blessing of the father, twice the inheritance would go to this child. And so we read in this text that Onan enjoyed the, the pleasure of connecting with this bride, but not producing offspring. And this was verse 10. He says, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, this is the introduction to a, a story that already is, is fairly sordid, fairly uh, uncomfortable, what, what all Tamar is experiencing. 
a tough family structure. And what I want us to do as we explore this story, we're going to realize that the, the first lesson learned in paying attention to Tamar's story is this. No matter how messy your family is, God's grace is big enough and deep enough and true enough to fold it into his family. Said another way, God is building his glorious family with our messy families. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the dynamics of a messy family, and that may be particularly pertinent coming out of Thanksgiving weekend, thinking about Christmas. Some of us have gotten to see family. Some of us weren't able to. But, but oftentimes around the holidays, we realize that there's tremendous blessing in family, and there's also tremendous challenge in family that we carry the difficulty of it. And, and we come to a story like the one of Tamar and the way that she is specifically included in genius, Jesus's genealogy. And we start to realize this, that God's glorious family is able to, and in fact does fold in the messiness of our families by his grace. And so this morning, what I wanna do is examine Genesis 38 and sketch out briefly the dynamics of a messy family. Because this, this text is gonna show it to us. So I just wanna, Six quick dynamics of a messy family. And this may serve as something that is, in a sense, um, kind of evaluative for you. It might be one of those things where you're able to say, oh, that's why there's been challenge in my family. Or this exposes some of what's been hard in the past. Or it may be that these dynamics serve as a warning sign for you. If you're young and dreaming about starting a family or just starting a family, it might be that these could serve as warning signs, like sharp curve ahead, pay attention. But we want to sketch out the dynamics of a messy family by paying attention to Tamar. And then we're going to talk about how, in fact, God's glorious family is able to work even through our messy families. Does that make sense? You with me? Let's talk about quickly the six dynamics of a messy family as exposed by Tamar. The first is this, and you, uh, maybe you heard it in verse one. The first is this, dad breaks away from covenant community. Dad breaks away from covenant community. All of the sordidness, the, the unseemly, the, the challenging of this chapter starts with a decision made by Judah in verse one. Look back with me. It says, it happened. It happened at that time. Already you know something ominous is coming. The way the chapter starts is like, it happened around this time. And you know that for the original readers, they're already going, oh yeah, we know some of Judah's story. We know what's coming. But it says, it happened at that time that Judah... He went down from his brothers and turned aside. So the language is that it happened. He went down. He turned aside. Judah is leaving his brothers and his family, the covenant family of God, and he's going to live among the Canaanites. And it's while he is there, while he is broken away from the covenant family that God has called together, that stuff starts to come undone. So often the the sadness and the despair and the, the brokenness in our families starts with decisions that were made by, by a father or by a husband that begins to break away from covenant family. We don't know why Judah was doing this. We do know that in the chapter previous that Joseph was just sold into slavery by Judah and his brothers. It may be that the brokenness of his family of origin and the covenant family that he's been a part of has been too much. He says, I just need to get away from it. But whatever it is that causes him to break away, while he is alone and away from covenant family, he begins to spiral. And I just want, I, I want to make this note that men, oftentimes it's, it's in their teens or their 20s that they think, I want to sow my wild oats and I want to experience the world. And then all of a sudden they're laying the foundation for family. Relationships begin to emerge, maybe even a marriage, maybe even a child or two out of this extended immaturity. And all of a sudden there's just, there's selfishness and brokenness that's worked into a family structure in that way. 
Or sometimes it's a man that breaks away in his 30s or 40s. He becomes distracted and he drifts while trying to create his, his carve out his way in the world. And as a result, the family suffers because dad and husband has broken away from covenant family. He's not meaningfully a part of accountability, seeking out the heart of God. And as a result, the family begins to, to drift. Or it might be in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that because of the coldness and the difficulty of life, cynicism breaks in and dad goes, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm not gonna continue to invest in the ways that I have. Whatever it looks like, oftentimes family messiness starts with the head, with, with a, the call to be a leader for, a, for men in the group. I just wanna say men, the messiness often starts with us. What does it look like for you to read that roadmap and say, what does it look for me to, to turn around from that road I'm going down to say, whoa, I need covenant community because when I go down and turn aside, things start to come undone. The first marker of a messy family in Genesis 38 is, is a dad that breaks away from covenant community. The second is this, God's design for marriage is discarded. Did you hear it in verses two through five? The way that Judah finds the, the mother of his children is entirely unique in the book of Genesis and the covenant family of God. That if you look back at the language, he says he saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Shua is the father, not the, the woman's name. The woman remains nameless in this story. It says he took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son. This is entirely different language from the marriages that have come before. There's no language for marriage in this text. Judah just, it, he sees a woman who's among the Canaanites. He likes what he sees. He takes her and she becomes his and he begins to have babies with her. What we realize is that for Judah, sex is a thing to be grasped. It's, it's based off of pleasure and desire. He sees this woman and he takes her for himself. And as a result, the, the value and the beauty and the dignity of marriage is discarded. They're unequally yoked. She's among the Canaanite people. She's not one of God's people marked out for, for this family. Um, and so the truth is, as we think about the messiness in our families, I just want to, I, I want to challenge you, particularly the younger folks in, in, the, in the bunch that are, start, that are dating or looking to get married, consider as you start to get serious in a relationship, consider this person and ask this question, do you want this man or this woman to be the primary shaping influence on my children? So often we talk ourselves into this man or this woman that we're with thinking well, she's so cute. <laughs> I like for people to see me with her on my arm. No, I don't really want her to be the mother of my children and to shape my heritage and my, my legacy, but, but I'd love to be with her on Saturday. And when we start to organize our lives like that, what we find with Judah is that because he discards the value of marriage and he doesn't pursue it in the way that God has ordained and set out in the early chapters of Genesis, that we begin to realize that the messiness of this family continues. And oftentimes there are family structures that are, that are situated upon un, unsteady ground because mom and dad don't share their faith convictions and their commitments in the same way. And as a result, it's very difficult to build a healthy and strong family dynamic. That the messiness of family starts with dad breaking away from community. It is continued when the design for marriage is discarded. Third, where women are undervalued or mistreated, the messiness of family multiplies significantly. Where women are undervalued or mistreated. Did you hear it in Tamar's story in this passage? Like the way that Tamar was treated. She was married to this guy named Ur, and Ur was so wicked that God struck him dead. What must that have been like just to start? 
that the husband of her youth was so wicked that God said he can't continue to live. There's both the pain of being married to this man and then the pain of losing him and trying to make sense of all that. And then his younger brother, Onan, taking advantage of her for his own pleasure, but not supporting her. And, she's, and then he struck down. So now she has, she's been widowed twice over by two wicked men. And then it says that Judah sent her away. And it says um, in verse 11, it says, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. The context makes it clear that Judah was not actually thinking of Tamar. He was actually worried about his own son. He wasn't willing to take, take responsibility for the sin of his boys. He was actually saying, they've died because of her. So why don't you go back to your father's house and someday I'll give you my youngest son as well. In essence, Tamar has been systematically dismantled by the three men in her life. She now lives back in her dad's house, desperate and empty, having been taken advantage of and discarded. The messiness of this family structure has been multiplied many times over because the, the women in the family structure are not being valued. They're not being given the dignity they need. It's a really poignant story in the, in the book, Scary Close by Donald Miller, he gives an honest point of confession. He says, one of the lowest points in the relationship with my wife was when we were engaged to be married and we were looking for our first home. And he said, we were standing in the kitchen of a house. Standing in the kitchen of a house uh, that I really wanted to buy. I was convinced it should be our first home. And she said she didn't like it. And he said, I stood there and I looked at her and I said, when you have money for a down payment and you can cover the mortgage, your opinion will matter more. And they said, you can imagine the devastation that that wreaked in my relationship for a really long time. He said, the great folly of what I was bringing to this relationship of not looking at my bride with value and dignity, like her voice and her opinion really mattered. He said the brokenness that worked into my relationship, it took a long time for the grace of God to, to undo. You see, when we, when we live in a family structure where wives and daughters are undervalued and underheard, that it it takes whatever messiness is in the family structure and it multiplies it exponentially. You see, the dynamic starts with a dad that breaks away from covenant community where marriage is discarded, where women are undervalued. The fourth is this, where death and loss create sadness at every level. In verse 12, as we continue the story, it says this, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter also died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to, to the sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. By the time you get to verse 12, just consider this. Judah, Tamar, and Judah's third son, um, whose name is Shelah. They're the three remaining in this family. Think about the loss they've experienced. Judah has now buried his two eldest sons and the mother of his children. Tamar has buried her first two husbands and her mother-in-law. Shayla, his, Sheila, the third son, has buried his mom and his two older brothers. And they're all trying to figure out how still to be a family together. I don't know if you've ever stepped into a family that's experienced significant loss, but oftentimes you'll realize that in every interaction, in every conversation, they're actually having an interaction together with someone that's not presently in the room. Have you ever experienced that? 
where there's a certain tension and something will be said and then somebody may even say something like, you wouldn't say that if mom were here. Or they'll say, I can't believe you would do that. You know dad would never let that happen. There's a certain sense of like, we're all dealing with the grief that is ever present and that sort of sadness breaks into family structures and it starts to insert itself into every conversation. You see, families are messy for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's things that we've done and sometimes it's just things that have happened. And here we see the sadness that's so present in this family creating even further brokenness. And then on top of that, two more, two more, and then we, we can move on to, to the resolution. The two other marks of, of a messy family is the, the secrets and the shame behind every corner. In verses 13 through 23, I won't read it all to you, but let, let me just tell you the, the way this story continues. Tamar is so desperate. She has been discarded by these men. She's living in such a desperate place. She hears that her father-in-law Judah has gone up to the sheep shearers. And they know that she knows that that will be a feast and there'll be much celebration. And so she goes and she presents herself like a, like a woman of the night sitting on the side of the road. And Judah, in his sadness and his desperation, and he has just bottomed out morally in all ways, he stops and he solicits her on the side of the road, not knowing who she is because she's wearing a veil. And she says, well, what are you going to give, what are you going to give me? And he says, I'll give you a sheep. And she says, how do I know you'll give me a sheep? And he gives her his staff and his signet ring and his cord. In essence, it's like giving a credit card and a driver's license and saying, this is how you know I'm going to come back and pay my debt. And when she has this, this down payment, she says, okay, and she, she services him, as it were. And as a result, he moves on and she gets pregnant. Well, a few months later, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he's indignant. He's indignant. And he, in fact, he says, she ought to be killed. Let her be burned. And then she steps forward and she says, well, whoever's signet and cord and staff this is, is the father of this child. And Judah immediately recognizes his credit card and driver's license. And he says, ah, she's far more righteous than I. And it says he never knew her again in that way but then she has her children. Well, this story just gets more and more twisted, does it not? At the conclusion of that story in verse 23, the way that Judah says it when he's looking for this woman and can't find her, he says, just let her keep these things as her own or we shall be laughed at. In essence, he's talking about all the secrets and all the shame in their story. He's saying to, to his friend that was looking for this woman originally, he's saying, just let it go. Let's just try to keep this covered because this story has so many layers that let's just continue to multiply the ways that we have secrets. The fifth mark of a messy family is that there is secrets and shame at every level. So often we have these things that have happened in our past and we just keep hiding them and hiding them and hiding them. And as a result, we become prisoners in a prison of our own making chained to our past, trying to pretend that it's all not the case. And then lastly, you heard it in his response when he says, have her burned. The sixth mark of a, of a messy family, as shown in this chapter, is this. There's pride and a desire to save face. It becomes a very thin veil. 
you know, there's like our true selves and our true selves are then covered over with shame. And then just outside of that shame, we put that outer self that we present to the world. And it oftentimes is a very thin shell, a veil that's trying to convince everybody. Basically, we're holding it together, okay? And Judah is this very typical bravado, tough going, well, let her be burned. I can't believe she did this thing, even though it's her sin that caused it. And it was, pardon me, it was his sin that caused it. And even before that, it was his discarding of her. It was his sin of his boys that put her in a desperate position. It was a whole family system that was broken in creating the ugliness. And he didn't want to take account for it. So often in our pride, we try to we try to reposition the blame and we try to maintain a thin veil of holding it all together and being okay. So I don't know where you find yourself in that. I, I, I'm sure you're feeling totally in the Christmas spirit at this point, right? Like, all right, this is so cheery. Um, you know, but the truth is it, it's Advent. It's, it's longing. It's O come, O come, Emmanuel. Like I need something because the truth is, I don't know where you find yourself in that, but every family is messy. Every family. We may not score six out of six, but as you hear that list, you may look back and go, well, one, three, and five are certainly true of us. Or two through six have been marking my family for a lot of years. Or I am on a crash course with one and four right now because I'm running down that track. You know, that, that all of a sudden we start to realize that we both have experienced the messiness because it's thrust on us and we create it because of our own sin and brokenness. And all of a sudden we realize we are in a system that is shrouded with brokenness and sin. It's what it means to be human. And I just want to give us two notes and responses because we're left with this question, what do we do with the messiness of our families? And we started out by saying, God is building his glorious family with and through our messy families. Well, how does he do it? I just want to give you two words of, of encouragement and challenge out of this text. The first is this. Would you be willing to tell your story the way that God does? Would you be willing to tell your story in a divine way? Can we just all own up to this for a second? This is stunning that this is in the Bible. Like, I'm surprised that God tells his story this way. That all history is selective, yet he chooses to select these details and include them in the telling of his family, his story, the genealogy of his son, and the way that he is moving in the world. Why does God tell his story this way? Divine storytelling is unvarnished and honest and true. He tells the whole story honestly. How do you tell your story? How do you tell your story? Do you tell your story in a godly way, in a divine way? I had a really close friend who loves me a lot tell me at the start of 2020 something that was really hard to hear. He gently and graciously said to me, oftentimes when I hear you tell a story about something I experienced, it sounds better than it was. And as I thought about that, he said, it's, it's not that you lie. He says, you're not a liar. <laughs> you know, it's always that thing when you start to, you're like, oh, this is tough. He says, it's not that you're a liar. It's just that the details you select make it sound nice and polished. And as I thought about that, I, especially in light of this text this week, as I was, as I was processing, I was, I was confessing to God, oh, God, forgive me. I don't tell my story the way you tell your story. 
unvarnished and honest because I think I need to hold everything together and I've got to present myself in a certain way and I need to have people think of me in a certain way. And as a result, there's an inability to connect and experience healing in the ways that God has designed. Because it is only the vulnerable and the honest that are able to connect with one another and to connect with God. It is only our true self that it can experience healing and hope. And as long as you keep telling your story in a way that tries to hold it all together, and I keep trying to tell my story in a way that holds it all together, it's just our superficial selves that kind of bounce off of one another, and we don't ever experience what God truly has for us. So my question is, how do you tell your story? I would invite you to lean in with greater courage and vulnerability and begin to honestly name what's happening in your heart and your life. You can do this in house church. The design is that we would be building familial structure, redemptive familial structure of brothers and sisters with a perfect dad that never breaks out against us, but perfectly loves us. And we together are situated as a family and we actually tell our stories to one another. We begin to experience the grace and the power of being a community under the love and the care of our God. I'm not talking about venting and complaining and oversharing, but I am talking about vulnerable and honest and appropriate sharing. And I just want to let you know this. There may be some of you that are dealing with some really deep and painful things. Uh, appendicitis. You know, if, I don't know if you've had appendicitis. I had appendicitis. I got to have my appendix removed. That was exciting. Thankfully, it hadn't burst yet. And so with orthoscopic surgery, I just have a very small little scar. But for those who, who, who by the time they're going in, if the appendix is already burst, it can't be orthoscopic. They actually have to be opened up and cleaned out and exposed to the oxygen in order to heal. And I just want you to know that for some of you, you're not sharing the fullness of your story and underneath the surface, it's not just like a little sick, it's, it's actually his burst. And you're dealing with the toxic realities of your family structure, your past, what's been done to you, and it just feels like it pollutes everything. And my invitation to you is, is don't try to just get the quick fix, but be willing to, to get the help that you need. And I just want you to know that at Our Road, we, we cover the first three sessions of counseling. If anybody ever is in a, specific, in a place where they go, you know what, I think I really need a counselor to work through with this. We totally value that. And we do that in the conjunction with pastoral care. And so if, if you ever need that, we'll cover three sessions for you with someone that we would, we would recommend you to. And we will walk with you on that journey. But what we want you to do is, is, is get the healing that you need that starts by telling our story the way that God does, by being honest about the depths of the brokenness. And then secondly, we celebrate the promised child. We celebrate the promised child. The redemption in this story comes with a very unexpected birth at the conclusion of the story. Look at Genesis 38 at the conclusion with me. Verses 27 through 30 says this, when the time of Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand and behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Interestingly, this, this is a very unique birth story, as you can hear. And each time that happens in the book of Genesis, it's a promised child that's coming. 
And Perez is just that promised child. By the, by the time we get to the book of Ruth, when Ruth is pregnant with an unexpected child, the blessing that is spoken over her is may your child be like Perez. Because Perez became so dignified and notable and he rose up a whole clan of dignified and notable men that he was celebrated in the book of Chronicles. He celebrated in the book of Nehemiah that those who came in the line of Perez were so powerful. They were the ones that were always noted and wanted to be on the team such that it becomes a blessing in the book of Ruth. May this child be like Perez. And what we see is that in the very moment of the deepest, darkest brokenness and sin, it is an unexpected child that brings redemption to this family. And this is included in the genealogy of Jesus because Jesus is saying it is, it is similar to what's happened before, but different in glorious ways. That in the midst of your deepest darkness, a promised child breaks in. That when we come to celebrate Christmas, what we are celebrating is this, that God in his perfect love for his children looked at their broken family structures and everything that had come apart. And he actually took on flesh and he came as a little baby. And he said, it's in this child that I will rework family structures. I'm starting a new family. He is my firstborn and those who trust in him will be adopted into my family. You will have a perfect father and a perfect older brother and you will be knit into a new family structure that reworks all the brokenness and the sadness of the story that we have lived. You see, as we come to experience the love and the grace of Jesus, as we see his death for our sins, his resurrection and his ascension, we realize that we have been invited into a new family structure a glorious family that is so glorious, it can fold in our messiness and rework it, making it beautiful. Tell your story honestly and set your gaze on the promised child. And in so doing, what we will find is this. God can build his glorious family with our messy families. Amen? Let me pray for us. So Father, we need you. Like we cannot fix the brokenness that we inherit for generations, that we participate in, the messiness of our lives and our families. But we thank you that you have gone to great lengths to communicate to us, we are never too far from your love and your grace and your presence. Thank you for that. Jesus, thank you for coming. You will cover any gap. You will, you will cover any distance to come and to save and to be with your children. Your resume proves that you are able your resume proves that you're the savior of the whole world, no matter how messy our story. So would you come for us? Brothers and sisters, even as you hear me pray, would you set your gaze fresh on Jesus as we come to the communion table, as we think about him? Would you thank God for the goodness of the work that he has done in Jesus and that he has come to redeem the brokenness of your story and of your family's story? And if you're new to this journey, would you just hear this good news? God loves you right where you are. He wants to break into the darkness and the messiness of your story. Would you turn your gaze on his son, Jesus? Receive the invitation to be knit into his family. As you confess your sin and trust in Jesus, you are born again into the family of God and he begins to redeem all of the brokenness and the messiness. Would you go on that journey with him today? So God, we love you, we bless you. We thank you and we, we want to celebrate the goodness of this story together. We pray that we do so with whole and pure hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.